Hello and welcome to Seeing Saw. I'm Catherine Bray, film critic and saw lover. And I'm Anna Bukatska, film critic, author, host of the Final Girls podcast and Jigsaw Apprentice. And this is Seeing Saw, the official Saw podcast. Now, if you're new to this podcast, who are we? We are Saw fans. Sawologists. Sawniac. Graduates of the John Kramer School of Engineering. Yes, we love this franchise uh, from its grimy green camera work to the ever-expanding roster of apprentices and traps and plot twists. And together over the next few episodes, we're going to be revisiting the Sawniverse, meeting fellow fans, doing some exclusive interviews and revealing all about the upcoming new film Saw X out on September 29th. And for anyone who is not as much into the soul lore as perhaps we are, first of all... <laughs> who are you? <laughs> truly, who are you? Correct your lifestyle. But you actually don't need to have seen all nine other films before watching Saw X when it comes to cinemas or even to listen to this podcast. The events of Saw X take place directly after Saw 1, which is the first film in the, f- in the series. We'll be referring to it as Saw 1 for clarity's sake. Um, so you can just watch that one, but we will also be recapping the events of that film before we get into talking about Saw X. So Saw 1 and you're done into Saw X. It's a great way into the franchise if you if you want to save Saws 2 to 9 for later. So welcome to Seeing Saw. Let's play a game. <laughs> so Saw X, it's in cinemas September 29th. But for now, let's go back to the beginning, cast our minds back. And Anna, take us, take us all the way back to the cultural context of 20 years ago. Okay, so you say it's been 20 years, and it has been 20 years. It's a very long-running franchise of horror films. And before anyone gets salty in the comments, I am looking at you. It is 20 years because the original Saw short film by James Wan and Lee Whannell came out in 2003, then got developed into the feature-length film of the same name, Saw, which gave birth to this whole franchise, this podcast, and so, so many recaps on YouTube. So don't try and catch Anna out on her maths or her, or her Saw knowledge. I know my Saw math. I don't know <laughs> math, but I know my Saw math. So Saw is fundamentally one of the most important horror films to come out in the last 20 years. Um, the original film in 2004 really ushered in what people have derisively called torture porn even though I really hesitate and we spoke about this at length in the first season of Seeing Saw I've always hesitated to lump in Saw the first one with that term because it actually has very little graphic violence in it very little torture it's mostly psychological it's mostly implied through the editing and the screenplay as opposed to what Saw eventually kind of developed as its aesthetic of having this really rapid fire edits of uh, increasingly elaborate torture scenarios or even the films that came directly on the heels of Saw like Hostel or The Devil's Rejects and the success of those handful of films like Saw which got its sequel the year after and subsequently became almost a tradition for horror fans to get a new Saw film every year. There's also Hostel and that gave wave to a whole bunch of sort of lesser quality examples of torture porn films they mostly focus on extended torment of characters if you could call them that they were essentially bodies they were really interested in the close-up detail of torture on bodies being ripped apart and i think it peaked i mean peak is a 
It troughed. Yeah. <laughs> it, it ended in a way with The Human Centipede and a Serbian film when those were released. At this point, the genre kind of started imploding in and of itself. It just got a bit too ridiculous to be sustainable. I remember a lot of it seemed to be a reaction against the way these films were even marketed from people who would never go into the cinema and actually see a film like totally, that. Totally, yeah. People assumed that it was going to be really gratuitous violence, unnecessary gore. And one of the things that is really interesting is a lot of horror fans actually don't really think of torture porn films as horror because they're interested in something else that horror um, isn't as much. But what's interesting is the kind of teen horror, which had been the dominating subgenre of the 90s up until the early 2000s, really took a backseat to this really gritty, raw, extremely violent and nihilistic type of films. And there was a resurgence of the supernatural, uh, particularly with remakes of J-horror, so that's Japanese horror, and the zombie is kind of the key overarching figure. And in the horror of the early to mid-2000s, anything and everything, including human life, was for sale. Uh, so there's not so much character development as there is just piling up of bodies that had been dismembered or tortured in some way, or reanimated sometimes. And one of the things it felt like some people from the outside were objecting to, I guess, and their, their cue was that, that word porn, people imagined that it was a lot more sexual than it was, I think. But it wasn't. Yeah. Although it was on the other side of the pond, because this is mostly American cinema, there was the new French extremity movement, which was really interested in sex and sexual violence as well, as well as death and bodies. But that was not really a country that was well known for its horror, definitely not for extreme horror. So that became um, kind of a label that was applied to the art house films that featured very intense graphic scenes of often unsimulated sex or just very extreme violence uh, that came out of nowhere. And then that evolved into straight up horror films like Switchblade Romance or Martyrs or Frontiers that were very evidently and overtly influenced by American horror films the previous decades and they in turn influenced American filmmakers themselves then found footage also really went through a boom from the mid um, 2000s to the mid 2010s was the big next big horror genre after the torture porn craze launching really with paranormal activity in 2010 which also became a long-stunning franchise that is still running um, and in its own way was sort of the millennials Blair Witch project and it then peaked with films like The Visit which was M. Night Shyamalan's return to genre uh, like Mungo, Grave Encounters, Creep, The VHS franchise and also gave birth with the advent and the um, widespread use of the internet and social media to desktop horror with films like Unfriended or Host much later on. And so this kind of golden age of found footage horror was really finding its footing between torture porn and art house horror and I'm using art house horror because I refuse categorically to use the term elevated horror it is a snobbish disingenuous term created by the media by people who do not like or understand or have any curiosity about the horror genre so I refuse but obviously the films that are often categorized as that started around 2014-15 with films like The Babadook um, It Follows Get Out The Witch Hereditary they all really were marked as the rise of a new kind of more cerebral and more emotional horror film and really crowned a new generation of filmmakers like Jordan Peele Jennifer Kent Ari Aster uh, Robert Egger 
authors, the same time that Mendelhorst started being more accepted in as a prestige genre with Get Out winning an Oscar and films like Julia de Cournot's Body Horror Tatane winning the Palme d'Or a few years after that. What do you think that did to the rep of like the Saw franchise, films like that? Well, you know what? A Saw film can get an Oscar. I still maintain hope. What if Saw 20 gets an Oscar? What if Saw X gets an Oscar? Tobin Bell. Tobin Bell. The recognized ta- acting talent <laughs> genius. And at the same time, the requel replaced the remake. The requel being a remake and a sequel, a bit of one and a bit of the other. Um, it's revived uh, long-standing horror IP. So legacy franchises like Halloween or Scream or The Exorcist have been sort of brought back to cinemas with the same characters from the original, um, but with a new story and with new additions. At the same time, horror turned emotional with filmmakers like Mike Flanagan really making stuff across uh, cinema and television as well and centering characters and trauma and grief and emotional experiences as the site of horror as opposed to just dismembering bodies or creating jump scare scenarios um and i think in a really really quick fire only slightly pedantic way that about covers the last 20 years of the genre amazing my head is spinning i feel like i I just lived 20 years in in a moment (laughs) thank you anna that was amazing i do apologize and so that really kind of ties into jigsaw doesn't it so he's been around for two decades now always been played by tobin bell um which i find very impressive especially for a franchise that's been running so long and he is fundamentally one of the very very few if not one of the the most important original villains of the last decade of horror films because one of the things that i do find quite curious is that we haven't really had new villains definitely not ones that have withstood the test of time and the test of a franchise like jigsaw and tobin bell have because while there have been remakes in the early 2000s uh, of horror classics like nightmare on elm street or halloween that have mostly attempted to explain away classic villains or give them a new backstory or make them even more violent they are still monsters of a different era freddy krueger Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, these are all villains from the 70s and the 80s. They're not villains of today, whether it's Jigsaw is precisely that. He originated in the 2000s and he's lived through this era. And he's not a supernatural villain. He's not immortal. He ages, he starts off the franchise being sick, terminally sick. And he is a vigilante. His main obsessive power is, well, aside from his um, engineering expertise, is his extreme belief the fact that he's an extremist kind of makes him a really the most interesting and probably relevant villain of our era and the fact he's played by Tobin Bell that matters right in a way that it sort of doesn't with Michael Myers or or you know Jason like it's about Tobin Bell and his face yeah because he doesn't have a mask on and masks are really used with horror villains right they become almost the iconic element of a villain but with Jigsaw it's his face it's often used in the promotional materials it's often used in the posters it's his face and his voice it's never masked even though we get kind of the voice alteration on the tapes from the very first film we have learned to recognize tobin bell's voice instantly as soon as he speaks as soon as jigsaw comes onto the scene either in audio or physical form we know exactly who that is and what his intentions are so i think it is it is really impressive similarly you know when you see jamie lee curtis play laurie strode for multiple timelines of the same franchise it's similarly, I don't think there's ever been a villain that's been played so consistently by a single actor. 
Oh, that's right. It's exciting that he's the he's the lead in Saw X, right? He is. It's very much kind of almost an origin story for Jigsaw, which I know you know we've all been pining for. We get to know so much of him throughout the franchise, but this is really uh, centered on him becoming Jigsaw, really accepting that this is his life's work, to quote the man himself. And it's almost like a the Batman Begins of the Saw franchise. Amazing. So, a lot has changed over 20 years, except Tobin Bell, he remains the same and always <laughs> he good. He is timeless, he is ageless. <laughs> he is beauty, he is grace and threat. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he is. But a lot of things have changed in the world of Saw across nine movies and 62 different murder traps. 62 murder traps, is and that I the actual know, number? Yes. And I definitely did not count them myself, my little <laughs> fingers. But can you get us up to speed about what actually happened in the Saw films? Yeah, yeah. So um, we're casting our minds back. It's 2004. Um, I mean, my first memory of this period in relation to Saw is the, probably the posters going up and thinking, mm. what is that? It looks gnarly. Um, I feel like I remember, Anna, you, you telling us last time about your boyfriend at the time it being in this screamo punk band. And yep. you went to see Saw with him pretending that you hadn't seen it already. I actually took a VHS tape, a DVD of Saw 1 to his very similar to this environment looking rehearsal studio to saw it to him and pretending like I'd never seen it before. But do you remember those, was it the UK posters that had the sort of X-rayed foot? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Yes beautiful poster um and then i because i'm very ancient was working on a film magazine um when it came out and i think i was i remember trying to be very you know above it all and like I, oh. i'll be like i can watch this i can watch this and eat a lasagna i'll be fine and actually you know there's some gnarly stuff in there and so recent australian film school graduates james wan and lee wanall they've come out of school they've written this script they've had no luck whatsoever getting it produced in australia and they've come to la with a, a dream in their pocket smile on their face and somehow convinced someone to give them one million dollars to make this this movie soar with this arresting central premise and that's really where the film opens is with this premise this um the film opens and we've got photographer adam stanheit and we've got oncologist dr lawrence gordon these two men who do not know each other, as far as we know at this point, wake up in an industrial bathroom, their legs shackled to pipes, and between them lies a corpse in a pool of blood, and the corpse is holding a gun and a cassette player. It's all very unhygienic. It's all very unhygienic. The bathroom looks absolutely disgusting. It's smeared in kind of brown matter. <laughs> Undisclosed brown matter. Undisclosed brown matter. I don't think we ever find out like whether Jigsaw was responsible for decorating the room that way. We do not need to Jigsaw did, with this. Did he art direct that bathroom <laughs> or did he find a really shitty looking bathroom? I don't, I don't think we know. Mm. So yeah, the corpse has the gun and a cassette player and the men, they find cassette tapes sort of on their persons. And they play the tapes and it, for the very first time in, you know, this this 20-year epic, we hear a mysterious voice telling them that they're about to play a game. Kind of escape room style. I'm not sure how big of a thing escape rooms were in 2004, but it's, it is a bit of a sort of an escape room setup, except obviously a lot more scary. And Dr. Lawrence Gordon, he's told that he needs to kill Adam Stanheit before six o'clock or his wife and child will be killed and they're being held by somebody somewhere. 
Adam's mission is more vague, um, but one thing worth mentioning is that when Adam wakes up in the bath, um, we actually see in the first few moments of the film a key going down the drain that would have unlocked his his leg shackles. Um, I don't know what Jigsaw's sort of plan was for if that key hadn't gone down the plug hole and Adam had just woken up and used the key to unlock his leg shackles. I think he would have just left. I think we can assume, given what we know about John Kramer, about about Jigsaw, that he had some sort of contingency plan or risk assessment built into the process because that's kind of the key skill for all good serial killers is their ability to risk assess and anticipate contingencies. I've never heard a serial killer being described that way and I'm kind of into it. It's what they do. It's the what good they do. ones. The yeah. bad ones are really bad at risk assessment. The bad ones don't do their risk assessments and they get the, caught. They're just all about the killing. Yeah. Not the safety requirements. But Jigsaw is amazing at this. We've all seen that thing where you where someone thinks that he's got the, the drop on mm. Jigsaw only for it to turn out that behaving in that way was exactly what Jigsaw had planned all along. I think we've seen that, that sort of particular dynamic a few times. Jigsaw's my favorite kind of villain where he is just nosy and kind of judgmental of other people and who can relate to that? So anyway I don't know how much detail we want to get into of everything that happens in Saw 1. Do we want to like really go there? Should we go there? Well on the toilet cistern in... (laughs) I thought for a moment you were going to explain how a toilet cistern works and why this one was broken. Yeah, so in the in the Victorian era, a man called yeah. Um, but so yeah, this this brown matter that we've already referred to is the most important element of the, the mysterious brown matter from the bathroom. Somebody, we presumably Jigsaw, uh, has drawn a heart on on the toilet system, and, and one of the ta- one of the clues is follow your heart. So they figure, okay, the toilet that's what that means. And then in a bag in the toilet system are the the implement of the title. It's two sores. Um, and I think I think it's around then or shortly after that they realise they must be in a trap set by the Jigsaw Killer, who is kind of a famous serial killer, um, known for his elaborate setups and sort of toying with his victims. I mean, given that, you think they maybe could have worked that out a little bit sooner, but no, they work it out at the point at which they find two sores. And we also get in, the, in this movie a bunch of other kind of flashbacks to different victims of Jigsaw's unique self-help um, life coaching method, whereby he gets people to experience what life is truly worth. I'm surprised he was never dubbed the Carpe Diem killer because that's very much his whole ethos. <laughs> Gosh, I love that. And I think you shouldn't be saying that on a podcast. You should be writing that into a script. The Carpe... I think they already did. It's called Saw. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, his, uh, so the Jigsaw killer's MO is that he wants people to appreciate their lives more that's you know people like software analyst mark wilson my favorite character hey, we love software analyst mark <laughs> wilson um he's the one who finds himself covered in flammable jelly kind of trying to waddle across a, a room full of bits of glass mm-hmm. whilst holding a candle yeah. and trying to solve some sort of number puzzle <laughs> because he's a software analyst honestly my worst nightmare maths and flammable jelly then we've her heroin addict amanda young she makes an appearance and that's really important because she is going to unlike software analyst mark wilson she is going to go on to become very very important in the franchise she pops up in a few different saw films she's in saw x which yeah, is, is one of the most exciting things to me about saw x is that we're going to be getting a bit more amanda um and she kind of goes a different way to a lot of the jigsaw victims i mean firstly a lot of them die most of them die amanda is 
completely sold on the jigsaw method. She now appreciates her life with a sort of new passion and she goes off to become his apprentice. And that's that's something we're going to be seeing more of in Saw X. Um, in Saw 1, we, I'm going to keep calling it Saw 1 just so it's clear. Yeah, in Saw 1, mm-hmm. in Saw 1, she's got the infamous bear trap on her head, um, which will rip her face open if she doesn't gouge a key out of the stomach of actually one of Saw's producers. He plays the role of the man mm-hmm. on the floor, drugged with opiates with a key in his stomach. Saw 1 is also a police procedural. Mm-hmm. We've got Danny Glover in the mix as police detective David Turp, and we've got his buddy, Steve and sing who rip gets taken out by a jigsaw booby trap um before he gets too much more screen time danny glover he then becomes obsessed with solving the jigsaw murders and ultimately turns out to have sicked photographer adam stanheit onto dr lawrence gordon believing that dr lawrence gordon is the jigsaw killer um, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that that's not the case. Uh, but it's, it is fun to think about the time when we didn't know, when we were so innocent and thought maybe maybe Danny Glover was onto something. We used to think maybe that the, the orderly, the hospital orderly Zepp was the jigsaw killer. Can you, re- can you remember that time, remember, that first yeah. time of watching Saw? Uh, it's, pure, it's a very innocent time. Although I was just about to say, but I don't think this, this is too much of a spoiler. Is Dr. Lawrence Gordon not a killer well is he a killer at this point no at this point no at this point no is he but is he he might be he might be yeah i think one of the nice things actually about saw x is that you you could watch saw one and then saw x to see whether you are into this franchise Mm -hmm. and then dig back into all of the others so maybe we won't give too many spoilers for all of the interim saw Saws 2 through 9, in case you've got people who've decided, okay, I've, I've never engaged with the Saw franchise before. Let's watch Saw 1 and then Saw X, because you could totally do that. And I think Saw X is a pretty great entry to kind of experience second. If you like watching stuff, especially in chronological order, mm. that's a very special Saw experience. I would like to re-watch them all in chronological order now. I think that would be, that would be the one for my next rewatch. Yes. Okay, so to just wrap yes, up yes. on the events of, of Saw 1, we've been made a promise in this film, and the promise is that we will see someone saw through their foot. Yes. That eventually happens for a variety of complex reasons. Not, not so complex reasons. Dr. Lawrence Gordon wants to save his family, and he's running out of time. So he finally steps up to the plate. He saws his old foot off. The one-footed Dr. Lawrence Gordon, um, he runs off to... To deal with that <laughs> well run run he, he, limps off. he limps off after shooting photographer adam stanheit and uh zep the orderly also kills detective david tap it's a real old blood blood buff by this point because he then gets battered to death by adam stanheit it's just loads of lads in a bathroom battering each other to death uh, the toilet lid is used as a deadly weapon at one point. It's, it's just always a yeah. deadly weapon. <laughs> it's great. It's it's a fantastic sort of final scene because Adam then finds, as we all know, a tape on Zep the orderly's body, revealing that all of Zep's actions have simply been due to a slow acting poison coursing through his blood. And if he if he manages to do all the stuff that he's been told to do, then he can obtain the antidote. Yes, surprise, surprise, Zep is in a jigsaw trap of his own. So as as his tape plays out, hello, Zep, um, we get the, the final climactic, amazing scene that I think is the scene that sold me on this franchise however many more they were going to make because i'm always going to come back to something that that has an ending this good the corpse in the bathroom sits up oh 
it's it's our boy it's john kramer <laughs> here he comes <laughs> yeah he's not dead the guy in the fl- uh, in the bathroom on the floor has been orchestrating the whole thing he's the real jigsaw killer it's the guy with the soul patch that we've glimpsed briefly at the hospital before it's john kramer it's tobin bell and you know i fell in love forever from that point and he just gets up, walks out, while Adam, who is played by screenwriter Lee Wanell, yep. just stares at him, completely not piecing together what just happened. And we never see Adam alive again. We never do. We never. That's for Saw 20. <laughs> that's the one that wins an Oscar, right? So Adam comes back and wins his Oscar. Yes. Uh, that's the return of Adam. And we make it supernatural. Beautiful. I love it. And the, then the sores that follow, I mean, we're not going to get into all of them at length because there just simply is not time, but they all incorporate various of the key elements that have been set up in this um, in this installment of the franchise. So I guess there's always going to be traps or games. I feel like that's that's one of the elements we're never going to not get in a Saw movie. Um, Tobin Bell as John Kramer, he's... Yeah, I, I think he's an element that we sh- we should always get in a Saw movie, ideally. There it is are, the law. Um, what else? There's, there'll always be tapes, I think. There'll always be tapes. Um, occasionally, there'll be Billy the puppet yeah. who will turn up. Really, is more of a messenger boy than a, than a actor in his own right. So he'll deliver messages. There must be twists. Mm-hmm. There must be a top and bell. Mm-hmm. There must be traps, and there must be life lessons. Life lessons, and uh, we've referred to this already, but a, a grimy green grade is preferred. <laughs> yes. We love a green look. It's not in all of them, but yeah, we love a green look. Yes, in most of them. And also some temporal shenanigans. Mm. You can never trust what timeline a Saw movie is presenting to you. It might be a flashback. It might be in the future. It might be in the past. It might be happening right now. It might be happening simultaneously with other events that have not yet been seen or will be seen in the future. Mm -hmm. So it plays around with time a lot. And I guess there's also this guiding philosophy of people appreciating their lives more by getting out of some deadly scrape. That's, um, is that, that, that's a fair summary of John Kramer's deal, right? Yeah, carpe diem. Carpe diem. <laughs> so one of the best things about the Saint Saw podcast was obviously our uh, trap race where we pitted one murder trap against another after each episode at the end of every film, and then we made them battle it out in some sort of Saw-esque competition that fundamentally mattered only to us. But let's bring that back in advance of discussing Saw X. Um, Remind me, what was the ultimate winner of the trap race at the end of the first season of Seeing Saw? So our grand tournament of traps, the, the the ultimate winner last season ended up being the pound of flesh trap from Saw 6. Do you remember what that one was? I have a vague memory of it. So uh, this is a gorgeous trap. This is the this is the larger gentleman and the lady, and it's an oppositional trap, mm-hmm. and it's whoever can cut off the most from their person, um, and which which will weigh the most on the scales that person will survive i love a trap like that where where one person is guaranteed to survive and one person is guaranteed to die it always feels like a little bit like if everybody can survive the trap then that's that's not as exciting and um at the same time if everybody dies i don't know it's satisfying to me when somebody escapes so it's like it's that 
a healthy bit of competition you're saying a healthy bit of competition exactly yeah. except then someone's death will be forever weighing on the other person's conscience that actor i think she won the scream queens competition to be in a saw movie um oh, so the, good job the her. lady that hacks her arm yeah. off um that's you know that was her prize was to hack her arm off and she wins in the trap she uh the lady who hacks her arm off wins versus the gentleman who cuts a large hunk of flesh from the side of his mm. his frame and i feel like they deliberately set it up um with him being a larger gentleman to imagine that he maybe has more to work with and is going to win the trap uh which is why she has to just go in there and cut off her whole arm and that's commitment that's commitment to the bit and that's what <laughs> we like to see from jigsaw victims <laughs> Jigsaw, by the way, I think would hate our trap race. I feel like he loves all his traps equally. They're like his children. And also he doesn't call them traps. He calls them games. That's true. But do you think that he has a special place in his heart for some traps above others? Like the reverse bear trap? Yeah, yeah. I think the reverse bear trap is just such a lovely image. Mm. And when it's used on, on Amanda, in a way, I think the reason that bear trap didn't go further in trap race for us was because she doesn't have to do anything to herself she has to dig the key out of the stomach of this guy who's who's passed out on opiates mm. um which is obviously awful and i'm not saying i would want to dig a key out of somebody's stomach but it's not the same as being asked to dig a key out of your own stomach yeah or dig a key out of your own eye which yeah. happens yeah. in saw too exactly so i think that's why we didn't have that that particular bear trap go any further i mean of course the bear trap reappears uh later it's a classic. In it is a classic it's yeah. a classic so that would be that would be one way if we were going to relitigate the trap race i think the bear trap would be a contender to come back can you think of any other well mine would always be uh the needle trap in mm. saw 2 which is amanda's second trap that she has to get out of mm -hmm. and she succeeds again so she it's not meant for her but it's particularly heinous for her to experience because obviously in the story she's a former heroin addict uh, and that's why jigsaw chose her to you know show her her way out of addiction via torture so it's essentially imagine an indoor pool the peak of luxury mm -hmm. but instead of beautiful clear um water it's dirty used needles all very sharp very pointy and she just gets pushed into there and she needs to find this one specific needle that has a key attached to it that will open the door and lead them to the next section of this big trap house um if there ever was an idea for a reality tv show <laughs> um, but it's obviously very traumatic and it's it's the death by a thousand cuts thing mm -hmm. that really messes with me it's the fact that there's tons of people around her that are screaming at her to find mm -hmm. the key but no one's helping her and she's in there alone and she's getting poked everywhere um with these needles it's obviously you know deeply psychologically scarring as well as physically very unpleasant um but she succeeds she so finds the needle in a needle stack <laughs> yes yes she does and i think it stands out to me because amanda's a character that we develop even in the first two films develop a little bit more of a connection with you know we don't spend that much time to her but we know that she's already survived a jigsaw trap we know that she is now you know been picked up again by him to be in part of this game it is later on revealed that she's an accomplice but we don't know that yet when she's in the needle trap so and and seeing that and knowing her background it is just emotionally troubling as much as physically unpleasant that's why it, it remains my favorite you make a strong case. That and the pig bat. I mean, yes, pig bat. 
I, I was going to bring up the pig vet. Uh, this is kind of the opposite thing of like, I don't really care about the emotional resonance or whatever for the characters for this. This is just, imagine you're in uh, a vat of corpse material from pigs that have rotted, rotten flesh. Like, you know, have you ever had something in your fridge too long that's meat and it's gone off? I mean, I hope not, but there's like literally no worse smell. Yes. The idea of that filling your mouth, filling your nose, like it's going in your ears. It's, it's going. Why would you bring up the ears? <laughs> no other orifices, please. It... <laughs> it's, like, it's like the mix of spoiled meat in mm -hmm. your fridge with spoiled yogurt. Yeah. And you put them together everything disgusting and it's all over you and you're going to drown in it so ultimately it's going in your lungs like it's just i mean the pig vat is just so revolting it, it doesn't even gross. need psychological re resonance i mean it, ha yeah, it has a bit of like i'm just going to try and sell you on it based purely on disgust and you know what it, pig vat is particularly special right because most of jigsaw's traps are mechanical mm. right usually there's some sort of iron concoction that he's come up with and build um stuff that is either pulling flesh or sticking things into flesh or burning or disintegrating flesh and this is just it's just gross it's a big yuck so thinking of these three favorites mm -hmm. if i imagine a trap race podium lovely picture it where would it's you the put disgusting olympics <laughs> it's made out of pig fat <laughs> where would you put the needle uh the needle trap pig vat and um pound the of flesh. pound of flesh pound of flesh okay uh i i, I love the logic of the pound of flesh mm. and the pound of flesh is also disgusting i don't know I, I like your case for the needles a lot and i like what you said about the psychology of it but i'm not like that fussed by needles i you know they don't, they don't really bother me I, so that, that one never really got under my skin that way um and i fully accept that my attachment to the pig fat is based kind of on just viscerality and it isn't like a classic engineering dilemma um in the same way as something like pound i'm gonna stick to pound of, i think we got it right last time i th i think you made a i think you make a strong case um i think i would go pound of flesh mm -hmm. Pig van in second place and needle um needle pit in third place. So you get a bit of a, a big bit of everything. Bit of competition, unhealthy competition. Yeah. Bit yeah. of uh grossness, a bit of uh emotional character depth. Lovely. And then, and of course this is not set in stone because in a future episode we're going to be incorporating traps from Saw X. So we'll look forward to that. <laughs> you will want to remain alert. There we go. Seeing Saw back in the game. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you can watch Saw X only in cinemas on September 29th. This season of Seeing Saw is produced by Industria Studios for Lionsgate. <laughs> <laughs>